Beide. And today on the dish, on the dish cast, we're going to do something really very simple, which is attempt to resolve the entire Israel-Palestine question and come to some resolution about it. We're not actually, but we're going to try and talk about some of the deeper questions about it. After I talked with Peter Beinert a while back, many listeners called in to say, look, you're presenting a rather skewed view of this. You should need to have other people from other perspectives. And obviously, that's exactly what I want to do. And many of you recommended Yossi Klein-Halevi, whom, of course, he's writing I've, I've long known and used to edit and read The New Republic, as a, as a principal two-state liberal Zionist in Jerusalem, a beautiful writer. And I spent the weekend uh, reading his rather beautiful New York Times bestseller, which I truly recommend for people to read. It's called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. And it's really a series of reflections on the whole project of Zionism and its future and its past and the state of the state of Israel today. Um, I'm going to try and think this through from first principles, and I can't think of anyone better to do it with. Yossi klein is a senior fellow at the Hartman Institute, and he's talking with me from Jerusalem, which I'm most uh, thrilled to have you as a guest, Yossi. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Good to be with you. Yossi, I normally, we always start with this question, but with you, this is actually a kind of really deep question, which is that it's how you came to be who you are, and 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 from your origins, you're an American to begin with. Maybe you could tell us how your childhood and adolescence led you to, at the age of 29, as it were, emigrate and repatriate in the state of Israel. Well, I, I grew up technically in the United States, but in fact, I, I grew up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn that was really in some sense uh, more an extension of Transylvania which is where my parents were from and <laughs> and and most of the most most of the the neighbors were from it, it's a neighborhood called Borough Park which today is is the largest concentration of Hasidic Jews when i was growing up uh, it was more heterogeneous at least religiously but very homogeneous in terms of the experience that that people had they most most of most of the grown-ups were were survivors, survivors of the Holocaust. And that really informed my childhood in 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 the most tangible way possible from from living living with a survivor, my father. My mother came came out just before the war. She was from Transylvania as well, but her family left. And all my friends were children of survivors, and that was that was that was the normal in Borough Park. And when I look back, that is it, that is not a normal you know, normal, though, is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you know, kind and, of a staggering and, thing. Tell me what when you're when you're a kid, whatever your environment is 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 normal. And when I look back on it now, it's it's astonishing to me that I was growing up. 20 years after the Holocaust and in a survivor family. And uh, it was almost a, a contemporary experience. And my father raised me with the intention of creating a, a, a contemporary. He told me his stories from, from when I was very young. 
and raised me with very much of an us versus them mindset. The, the Holocaust happened because the whole world hates the Jews. And the world is essentially divided between two types of non-Jews, uh, those who actively want to kill Jews and those who are quietly glad that other, others are doing the dirty work. And that is what I took for granted growing up. And it took me a long time. I'd say that my process of growing up was growing out of, of my father's survivor mindset and of beginning to own my own reality as an American-born Jew. I was growing up in the 1960s with an American passport in, in the most welcoming country that Jews had ever lived in. And it took me a long time to, longer than it should have, <laughs> to, to make that transition from being my father's pretend contemporary to owning my generation's experience and, and really owning the, uh, the 60s and 70s. Nonetheless, the <clears throat> memory of the Holocaust obviously had to be incredibly potent. I mean, I, I, it's very hard, to be honest, to imagine growing mm -hmm. up with a whole generation of people who were, had experienced that kind of horror. I don't blame your father a millisecond for feeling the way that he did. And I wouldn't blame you for absorbing mm -hmm those feelings given the i mean it, you're still in the 60s you know you're, you're only 20 years you're only a couple of decades away and i think it's easy mm -hmm. to forget the, the, the psychological trauma of that and 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 also then the obviously the the way in which that trauma replicates itself in other generations to to find the strength to try and figure your way out of that incredibly yeah. hard well, but you, you know, but you then decided to go to Israel you then resolved this question yeah. even though you come to terms with the fact you live in this country which is about as welcoming as any country has ever been to Jews and yet you you went tell, tell me about that that evolution well I think that I always knew that I was bound for Israel my first trip to Israel was when I was 14. And it was the summer of 1967, just a few weeks after the Six-Day War, which was really the happy, the happy ending of Jewish history, or so it seemed, that summer. There really was this sense that Israel had definitively ended the existential threats to the Jewish people. And Jewish history had come full circle back to its place of origin. And we were safe. We would protect ourselves. We wouldn't depend on anyone else to protect us. We knew how to defend ourselves. And then, of course, things started getting complicated. But from the vantage point of the summer of 67, Israel had just retrieved itself from what looked just before the war to be an existential threat. The, the Arab armies were closing in on Israel's borders. Arab leaders were speaking about driving the Jews into the sea. And Jews all around the world were united in this, this sense of dread uh, of an imminent Holocaust, that it was about to happen again. And that's, that was very strongly the emotions uh, that I recall of, the, of that period. And then suddenly, not only is Israel reprieved, but it finds itself in, in, in the most powerful position that the Jews have been in probably since the kingdom of, of King David. And here we are 
again, you know, we're talking about two decades after the Holocaust. So there's a certain schizophrenia in 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 our that's built into my generation's relationship to the question of survival. On the one hand, we are existentially threatened, and that plays itself out with with Iran, for example, with the fact that on on Israel's borders we have terror groups that are committed to our destruction. Whether they have the capability or not is a second question. But we live with this constant refrain that you have no right to exist, that that one day you will not exist. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have this sense of ourselves as being, a, we, can, we, we know how to defend ourselves. We are a powerful country. We're a nuclear power. We have nothing to be afraid of. And, uh, and these two emotions coexist in us. And it, and it really goes back to 1967, to that summer of 67, when, when we were reprieved from destruction and found ourselves to be the military power in the region in, in a matter of three weeks. You know, in, in the weeks before the Six-Day War, we were on our way to destruction and suddenly Israel's the, the, the superpower in the Middle East. How old were you then, in 67, if you don't mind me asking? I was, I'm just uh, to I was 14. How that would impact you. I was 14. So that, that has a pretty big, big impact. Right. It has a big impact on you. Oh, so, yeah. So, yeah. so from 14 to 29, was it, was it the subsequent struggles in the Yom Kippur War? Or, or what was it that, that shifted you towards emigrating? That's what I'm trying to get at. Well, the summer of 67, I told my father, I, I, I went to Israel with my father. He had two brothers who had survived the war who we hadn't seen who were living in Israel. And so as soon as as soon as the, the Six-Day War ended, he said, that's it, we're getting on a plane and we're going to Israel. And in those years, that wasn't, that wasn't so, such, a, such a usual thing to do, to just get on a plane and, and, and go abroad. But he felt he just couldn't keep away anymore. And so I told my father that summer, uh, you go home and I'm staying here for high school. And I thought that was a pretty reasonable plan. <laughs> and you can imagine how that worked out. And, uh, so, of course, I, went, I was dragged back to, to Brooklyn for high school. But I, I knew from that moment that I, I had to be in Israel. I had to, however the Israeli story would play out, I needed to be there. And, and, and I think it was for, for a few reasons. One was that the, the deep realization that I certainly grew up with and, 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 and imbibed from my father was the sense of, of privilege. And I, I know that's a loaded term in, in your American discourse today, but I use it in the, in the most positive sense, the privilege of being the first generation of Jews in, in 2000 years to grow up with the reality of a Jewish state. And I needed to know how this story plays out. And I also felt very strongly that summer, you know, I, I, I fell in love with Israelis immediately. I fell in love with this, this, this society of people who had been through the absolute worst of the 20th century. I'm, I'm not only talking about the Holocaust survivors. That's, that's the obvious side of the story. I'm also speaking about the, the Jews who came from Arab countries, who actually are a majority 
of the Israeli Jewish population. It's not European Jews. It's it's Middle Eastern Jews, and 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 these were people who, in 1967, when I first met Mizrahim Jews from from the East, had been in the country 10, 15 years, had been living in tent camps. They were uprooted refugees. And so the all of Israel was this one big wound, different variations of uprooting. And I felt as an American Jew, I have the privilege of voluntarily joining this story. Most of the Jews in Israel were there as refugees. And I want, I felt that if all of those thousands of years of Jewish longing and prayers were to have validity in some way, then Israel didn't, wasn't only a refuge, wasn't, shouldn't only be a destination for Jews who couldn't get a green card, you know, and, and, and come to America. And I felt there really was significance in the statement of, of an American Jew saying, I'm, I'm part of this story and, and how wonderful that I'm alive when, when, when the Jewish people has, has regained its national sovereignty. So I always, I always knew I was, I was on my way here. You, you describe going there as, as arriving home. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a big statement. It's as if you personally, until you got there, were still somehow not home in America. Is that, is that how you felt? That is how I, how I personally felt. And what's interesting is that so the more I've lived in Israel, and, it's, and this is my 40th year now of, of being here, the more I appreciate my Americanness, the more I appreciate what a, a wonderful home America has been to the Jews and was to me as well. You know, I, I married a woman who, my wife, Sarah, who's a convert to Judaism and is the daughter of pilgrims. She's, she comes from, if not quite the Mayflower, close to it. She, on, on another side of her family, she's a direct descendant of Peter Stuyvesant. So, you know, I, I, I feel that America has been so generous to me. America has given me its, 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 uh, one one of its royalty, and 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 I was totally excited. one of its one of its myself. original Zionists. One might one, say one. Yes, you so might say if, that. If one if one if one, <laughs> if one sees the the Anabaptists and the the the, the refuseniks of, of 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 Europe of the 16th 17th centuries as Zionists, which they kind Very of were. So. I mean, some of in the, certainly in their language, they were, and that's they of course were. part of the. They were. They they believed in a promised yeah. land, and they believed they were going to try and find it and create it in that way. And I think that's one of the insights into understanding the American, unique American attachment to Zionism and to the state of Israel. It's, and, and why, in fact, of course, at this point, by far the most enthusiastic supporters of Israel in the United States are actually born-again evangelical Christians, as Donald Trump recently <laughs> reminded us. But we'll get to him in a little bit. It is a fascinating thing, though, isn't it, that you that this there's a religion that's rooted in a land, you know, that really does have this place that seems, and yet the place in Jewish history, as you as you lay out, is always has for the vast majority of the history of the last two thousand years and more was always in its absence. 
there was there was a paradox here that the, that the land was defining of you, but mainly because it was never yours, and and that therefore there's this this sort of paradox in Zionism about about, about and here's a question that the average in, you know ingenuous person might ask. You describe this beautiful story of of a people thrown out of their own lands, traveling across the world, recreating cultures in every different country, the Middle East and also in Europe, and the dream always of this homeland, the Zion, always talking up at Jerusalem. Why didn't they go there before? Why did not the Jews of the Middle East, as you describe them, who were living in different, you know, whether in Baghdad or, or, or Morocco, why did they, if, if Zionism was all about returning home, why did they not ever return home until the mid 20th century? At least very, it's very a, few of them. It's a really good Can question. You that? Yes, I'll try. It's actually uh, a topic of great debate in Israel today, and it periodically erupts in, in the public conversation. I think that, that one, one answer is to look at the, the very strange and, and for me moving phenomenon of the f- false messiahs in Jewish history. And through, throughout these last 2,000 years, there were pretenders to the, the, the messianic role arising in Jewish communities all over the diaspora, from, from Yemen to, to Poland, who announced that they, were, they have come to, to take the Jews home. And there were many instances of Jews selling all their belongings and, and, and preparing to leave and being stopped or the, the false messiahs exposed. There's a story of the Jewish community in Cyprus following a false messiah who promises that we're all going to leap over a cliff and we're going to fly to the land of Israel, which was pretty close to Cyprus. And they flew over the cliff. The most famous story of a, of a false messiah was uh, Shabbatai Tzvi, who came from, from Saloniki in what was then the Ottoman Empire, today is Greece, and announced that, that he is the messiah, he is going to return the Jews home. And Jews all over the diaspora sold their belongings, and there was hysteria. And the, the Ottoman sultan felt a threat to his rule and arrested Shabtai Tzvi and threatened, threatened him, gave him the choice, conversion or death, and he converted. He became a Muslim. And so this vast movement, which, which, which was galvanizing the Jewish people, a kind of a proto-Zionism, simply collapsed. Some of his followers converted with him to Islam on the assumption that he, he was a pretend Muslim and that this was all part of some Kabbalistic, some mystical drama that Shabtai Tzvi was playing out, and, and he was going to reveal himself one day. To this day, there are rumors of secret Sabatian cells in Turkey. They're known as the, the Donme. So the, the, I would call it, in, in a way, the underground history of, of the last 2,000 years is a story of, of frustrated return. That said, there were always Jews moving to this land throughout 
throughout the period, whenever Jews were able to, so that there was always a Jewish presence. The first census that was taken of Jerusalem was in the mid-19th century before the advent of Zionism. And the Jews were a majority in Jerusalem. They were a minority in this land, but not in Jerusalem. And so it's, you know, it's also difficult to say, you know, I'm thinking about, about how, how, why didn't my father go see his, his two brothers who had survived? What, why did he wait 20 years after the war? Why did he wait to the Six-Day War to finally go? People, people don't move so easily. And especially in, in, in medieval times, I think people basically stayed not only in the country where they were born, more or less in the village. So I think that, that we may have a tendency to, to retroactively impose what we consider to be normal. But, if, but, his, but why would you need a messiah? It, it, uh, for example, to go back to Israel. I mean, forgive me for ingenuous questions, but say, for example, no, you have the Jewish it's population. It's a really important... In, ba- it's, in Baghdad. You're, yeah, you're thinking, um, Andrew, you're, <laughs> think, you're thinking like a religious person. <laughs> and you're asking... <laughs> well, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> you're asking, you're asking, you're asking uh, religious questions. And, you know, my sense of, of, of how Jews understood the exile was that the exile was a punishment. And, you know, we, it's, it's in our prayers. You know, the Christians pre-Vatican II theology was that the Jews uh, were punished uh, by God for rejecting Jesus. And that's why we were wandering, wandering the earth. The truth is that rabbinic Judaism, which, which emerged more or less around the same time as Christianity, also created a similar theology, obviously for different for different reason, but it was also a sin-based punishment. The exile didn't happen because the Jews weren't strong enough to resist the Roman legions. The exile happened because the Jews weren't worthy of living in the Holy Land. Very, very similar to, to classical Christian theology. The reasons that the rabbis came up with were, were of course, very different. We, we blew it because of hatred among Jews for their fellow Jews. We blew it because we didn't respect the dignity of our, of our fellow, fellow human beings. There, there's, there's a whole body of rabbinic thought about why we were punished. But if you're a religious Jew, in the Middle Ages, and you've been taught since childhood that this is God's will, and God, in his good time, will decide when to reopen the prison door and, and free us. But that's not our call. That's, that's, that's right. the Messiah's call. And so it required messianic intervention. To, to, to restore the Jews' home. The, the, the radical shift of Zionism, and this is why it required the 19th century and, and, and the secularization of Europe, was to say, we're going to redeem ourselves. Why are we waiting for, for this Messiah who never actually seems to show up? Why don't we try to actually redeem ourselves? And lo and behold, it worked. And that's a very powerful argument for sec- for secular Israelis. You know, we waited 2,000 years, and not a whole lot of good happened to the Jews in those 2,000 years. <laughs> when, we took our, when we took matters into our own hands, 
that's when that's when suddenly we became liberated. One of the the early classic Zionist texts was called Auto Emancipation, and that was very much a a, a kind of a jibe at this messianic passivity. But then that has to complicate the religious imperative to resettle Israel, right? It has to complicate Absolutely. it because, in fact, it's kind of a slightly sacrilegious way of saying, no, uh, we're not going to wait for God to do this. We're not going to wait for the Messiah to come. We're going get to our, get our act together and go over there. That's, so, I, I, in other words, there is a sl- in, in, your, in your own love of Israel, there is this, and you return there in the book anyway, there is this deep religious longing 2,000 years of longing, even more, of, of rebuilding this. And yet Zionism really isn't that. It's a turn on that. It's a 19th century move to say, no, we're going to be a secular Jewish state. We deserve a homeland, and we can build it there. Well, it's, it's, it is and it isn't. And, 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 and I'm, I'm not being okay. coy, because I think that Zionism, no, simulta- I- Zionism simultaneously is a revolt against against tradition against certainly the passivity of the tradition but even more deeply zionism is is telling the jewish people that we're going to create an alternative authority until now the rabbis had the final word they were the leaders we're going to be creating a secular authority here politicians mm. and the the mm. the most vehement opponents of, of Zionism in its in its certainly in its early years were not coincidentally the ultra orthodox Jews, who understood un, mm-hmm. understood that Zionism was a threat to their preeminence, and this is a struggle that's mm-hmm. still happening in Israel today. The ultra orthodox have been reduced mm-hmm. to a minority, but but not a quiet minority. They believe that the, no, the that, that. that the preeminence that they lost belongs to them and that and needs to be regained. But Zionism was 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 more complicated than that, because Zionism from the very beginning also drew on on religious validity. And for me, the the seminal moment when Zionism established its legitimate roots in 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 Jewish longing and Jewish tradition was when it rejected the well-intentioned but disastrous British colonialist offer in uh, 1902, 1903, to establish a Jewish national home in Uganda. And Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism, who, who had this deep premonition of imminent disaster for the Jews of Europe and really saw Zionism as a literal life and death rescue mission, came to the Zionist movement and said, listen, millions of Jews in in Tsarist Russia are in physical danger. He couldn't imagine that it would actually be coming from Western Europe, ultimately. He said, the the Jews of of Tsarist Russia are, are, are an existential threat. Let's bring them out to Uganda. And then when we're able to, we will we will complete the journey home. And the revolt within Zionism was led by the Jews from Russia, who were the ones Herzl was trying to save. And they said, it's going to be Zion or nowhere. And the defeat of Uganda, if let's put it this way, if Zionism had accepted Uganda, we would have been a colonialist movement. 
a tragic colonialist movement, a, a unique colonialist movement whose purpose wasn't to exploit but to salvage. Nevertheless, it would have been a colonialist movement. By insisting on a return to the land of Israel, Zionism aligned itself with classical Judaism and, and said there can be no substitute, even if it's a matter of life and death. And that's, that's how a, a native people behaves. You're willing to take that chance for the sake of home. Native is an interesting word because they're literally not native in the sense that the, the generations we're talking about had not seen that country for millennia. And that, of course, is, is part of the paradox. From the point of view of the, of the average inhabitant of, of, of that part of the world at that point in time, how could they tell the difference between colonialism and uh, return to a native land by people whom they hadn't seen, essentially, certainly not in any great numbers, for, for thousands of years. That's, I mean, I'm just, it is a remarkable story. I mean, it's an astonishing story. I can't think of any story, really. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre story. <laughs> it is. Let's just yes, accept yes. that. It uh, it's a wonderful is. and amazing story, but it's also really weird uh, and unique, obviously, which is why all the attempts to analogize it just kind of just don't quite work in some key respect or other. But from their point of view, as you, I oh, think, in this book, absolutely. have the emotional absolutely. empathy to see this is what what is happening. And and and. and they just lived in the same villages or neighborhoods or towns or, 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 or whatever for, for many, many generations. It lived a pretty, Jews were a small minority in that region. It wasn't hugely populated, obviously, in the early 20th century, as you, as you also point out. But it wasn't unpopulated. And the people living there had, had real links to the ground, to their homes, in a way that nobody coming from outside could possibly have. And so... Essentially, when you look at the paradox of this, then, of course, I don't want to get into all the details, but of course, the partition plans and so on never, well, however, I think admirable many of them were, however well-intentioned many of them were, never got the consent of the people living there. And it seems to me that I don't blame them. I don't know how anybody could not blame them. I mean, what? You're coming into our country and reestablishing a whole, and not only that, but it's going to be a religion different than ours, and not only that, but so... And then, of course, when there wasn't consent, the state of Israel was created by violence, by terrorism, by, by, by military action. It was not founded upon a mutual agreement. And that, of course, is the beginning of the, of, of the fight. How, do you, how would you respond to that narrative of what actually happened? Well, I, I agree with you in that I don't think that the Palestinians, and for that matter, the the whole Arab world could have responded uh, any differently than they did. The, the, the Palestinians could not have seen a distinction between, between Jews returning home and European colonialists invading. From their point of view, the, the, there was no distinction. From our point of view, we were not, we were not coming to the land, we were coming back. And, and the way that, that we understood this process was re-indigenizing ourselves. That 
and and that we had always been we had always maintained the kind of vicarious indigenousness and so from our point of view there was nothing more inevitable nothing more natural than than this move and so the tragedy in this conflict for me andrew the tragedy of this conflict is that neither side had a choice and you know you can sit in judgment on on one side or the other and certainly that's where the 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 polemics fall fall well this side should have realized that the Jews are the Palestinians should not have tried to to violently stop the Jews from coming home as as they did almost from the beginning or or the Jews should not have presumed to ownership of a land that they hadn't been a majority in for 2000 years and to my mind those are irrelevant arguments because if you if you look at the inner life of a people you realize that these decisions were not made voluntarily they weren't even made they certainly weren't made uh, out of a place of ill will each people was responding in the only way that its history could allow them to and and so i'm not look you know i i'm not going to judge the palestinians for trying to stop the jews from coming home i understand that and in their place i would have done the same but my argument when i speak to palestinians is in my place you would have done the same as well because that was the logic of our of our history of our tradition of our faith and the circumstances that we were in the threats that jews faced may have been the impetus but that wasn't the initial motive the motive was was this sense of profound homeness and so when you ask me why did i leave the united states which is really a fantastic home and move to not such a hospitable region on the planet you know and uh, the middle east is is a pretty hard place and it's pro- and it's getting harder and and but for me there was there was no question it was and if you're asking for rational reasons i don't know that i can give that to you i just knew mm-hmm. that i was home when i when, from the moment i saw i saw israel and and that's been the experience of jews from around the world you know jews who who started walking leaving their their villages in the ethiopian mountains in the 1980s and why why did you go uh because because we heard that you were there <laughs> we heard that a jewish state existed again and and so there's there's when you try to apply but when you say when you say that when you say that there was no choice yes of to than to construct uh, a jewish state that's that why could you not have continued as had happened for 200,000 years i mean that's the question i mean if, why suddenly now you might say to avoid the holocaust but the holocaust happened so so what was the emergency that required Israel to be created in 1948. Like that, why was there no choice at that point? Could you not just have moved into the into the that area and built up local communities, or or or, or built up synagogues or communities, or or come back to the homeland without this this attempt to create a whole new 
political state which would inherently deprive the inhabitants of self-government? Well, Israel, first of all, wasn't created in 1948. It was formally declared, but it already existed, the institutions, the society. Israel was a, a fully functioning country that was only awaiting uh, its declaration. You know, Israel now is, is 70 years old. The, the foundations of Israel were laid 70 years before the state was established. The, 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 the creation of a, modern, of a modern Jewish society began in the, in the 19th century. And so, so that's, that's, that's the sense of, of Israel being forcibly created. Israel, Israel already existed in 1948. Now, I understand why the Palestinian National Movement rejected the UN partition vote. And in their place, I may well have, have done the same. But the fact is that Israel, the Zionist movement, didn't, didn't present this as an either-or option. It, it, it supported partition from the very beginning. Now, not, not, not the entirety of the Zionist movement. The right wing of the, of, of the movement opposed partition, as it does today. Fortunately, in the 1940s, it was in the minority, and and the the moderate wing of Zionism was 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 the governing wing, and uh, and Zionism supported partition. And the truth is that any time there was a possibility of of a two state solution, Israel said yes. Now that hasn't been true in the last ten years. It was it has not been true under the Netanyahu governments. And and that is is part of my my deep disagreement with 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 Netanyahu and with 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 the right, but but whenever there was a chance for a two state solution, Israel said yes, and the Palestinian leadership in what way had a was Israel in? If Israel was already in existence, why did? Why did the need to launch these the, the military and terror attacks that drove seven hundred thousand people out of the country? I mean, I don't understand. If if it already was there, why would it did it need to establish itself in the way that it did? There were two stages to the nineteen forty eight war. The first stage was effectively a civil war between the Palestinian Arabs and what were still then the Palestinian Jews. Everyone was called Palestinians in those in, before the state was created. And the Palestinian, but the Palestinian Arab national movement declared war immediately after the UN vote, declared war against the Jewish communities, and began attacking the Jewish communities. The the launching of 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 what you call terrorism and for me was was a a response of self defense was an attempt to protect the Jewish communities. The second phase of the civil war was when Arab countries, six Arab countries, invaded the day after Israel was established. But the sense of you know this for me that's a a reconstruction of history. That that does not that does not ring true. 
So you're saying that you think the state of Israel was not constructed by the use of violence? Well, it was, it certainly was, it was fought into existence. Of course it was. It defended mm -hmm. itself, but it didn't have to be that way. The state already existed. And theoretically, if partition would have been accepted by the Palestinian national movement and the Arab world, then, then the war could have been prevented and the expulsion of the Palestinians would have been prevented. And by the same token, yeah, you know, but of course it wasn't for reasons that you admirably understand. But then, of course, the obviously I don't want to. I mean, this you go over this for a very long time. But then, of course, you have the you know the obvious nak what is understood as nakba, the point at which so many people lost access to their homes, their families, their villages where they'd lived for thousands of years, and complete strangers moved in. This is not. This is the beginning of conflict that will never be resolved, really, because because rooting people up from their their homes that they've had for thousands of well hundreds of years or whatever, because of an external ideology that comes in and wants to do that, that's people are never going to get over that, are they? And well, is, is it um, fair? I, 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 let's let's unpack the way you you phrase that. Uh, an external ideology okay. that wanted to do that that was not the goal of Zionism. To, to uproot the Palestinians. Zionism would not have accepted partition if that was the goal. And uh, this notion that, that the purpose of Zionism was to replace the Palestinians, there was room then and there is room now for two states. And the, you know, Andrew, the, 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 there was a simplistic narrative a, a pro-Israel simplistic narrative that took hold uh, in the West in the 50s and 60s and 70s, in which Israel could do no wrong, and all of the blame was put on the Palestinians, and they had no case. And what's happened in the last few decades is that one simplistic narrative in which the Palestinians and the Arabs were the bad guys is now being replaced by a new simplistic narrative in which the Zionists are the, the demonic force here. And this notion that the Palestinians were driven out by a, a Zionist movement intent on, on throwing people out of their homes and dispossessing them, and that the Zionists used violence against essentially a peaceful population is a fundamental distortion of what happened. You know, I, I and, and this, is, this is taking root um, in parts of of the progressive world, and I and I'm not putting you there. I I I, I have a fairly good idea where you sit, but also in, even in parts of uh, as you know, certain parts of the American Jewish community as well. I I spoke not long ago to an audience of liberal rabbinical students, and I asked them how many of you can name a massacre committed by Zionist forces against Palestinians in 1948. And every hand in that room went up. And I said, how many of you can name a massacre committed by Palestinians against Jews in 1948? A few hands tentatively went up. These are rabbinical students. Now ask any Israeli what happened in 1948. And they'll say, well, yes, there was Dir Yassin, where the, where, 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 where Zionists massacred Palestinians. And there was the Hadassah convoy 
where Palestinian militias massacred 80 doctors and nurses on the way to Hadassah Hospital. There was the Etzion block. We could, each side can give you a long litany of massacres that the other side committed. I think we, I think each side needs to own the crimes it committed. And at the same time, the other side needs to, <laughs> needs to own its crimes as well. And so let's not replace one simplistic narrative for the other. And I don't know quite why this conflict, more than, than, than so many other conflicts, seems to invite black and white judgments. You're either, you're either passionately pro-Israel or you're passionately pro-Palestinian. One side or the other has to be completely right. And I see this conflict this as a conflict between right versus right. And, and each side can make a very compelling claim about, about why, why its side is right. Now, I live, you know, I live in my side. I'm a protagonist in this conflict. I'm not neutral. I chose a side. But I've also tried to experience this conflict in different ways. First of all, I worked for you. <laughs> I worked for the New Republic for many years. I, I worked as a journalist. Now, it's true the New Republic in those years was very pro-Israel, but I really did try to, to speak to Palestinians, to hear their point of view. I've been involved in reconciliation work. And in the book that I, that I wrote, not only did I include Palestinian responses with their counter-narrative, but I gave the Palestinian narrative the last word. I wrote this book to explain and defend Zionism. But I gave the anti-Zionist narrative the last word because I take seriously the need for us to create a new language that goes beyond the zero-sum game. Oh, you Zionists, you, you came you in out of nowhere and you uprooted, you uprooted us and you, 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 you intended to massacre us from the beginning. Or you Palestinians, you know, the Mufti, who was the head of the Palestinian National Movement, was Hitler's guest in Berlin through the war years. So you're all Nazis and all you want to do is destroy us. You know, you're the next, you're the next enemy, the next genocidal enemy. And maybe we need to break away from colonialists versus Nazis, because that's, that's the model we that do. has brought us to this point. No, you're right. Obviously, I think you're right. What I'm, where I come at this is from a basically pro-Israel person. I mean, to someone who's a huge admirer of the state of Israel. I, how one could not admire the state of Israel seems to me to be impossible in, in so many ways. But just increasing qualms about the costs and the, the thing that, that might make one, let's put it this way, skeptical of this is simply the fact that that in large parts of, let's say, greater Israel, Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, the, the policy of the last at least, I think, 20 years has been literally the great replacement. It is, it is a, a literal version of an it's attempt it's a to... It's a complicated term. Uh, <laughs> well, it is, but let's put it this way. It's designed to maximize the population of Israelis so that there could never be a two-state solution and, and has been engaged in successive by successive governments of, the, of Israel, resisting all, even the slightest American pressure, refusing to 
compromise with Obama, refusing to stop the settlements even now, in such a way that a, a neutral observer looking at this says, this is not a good faith two-state solution country. This has, hasn't been in good faith for 20 years. That they are, how could one possibly negotiate a two-state solution when one side refuses at any point even to freeze the, the deliberate repopulation of those of those areas. I mean, that's to be honest, you that's what I just get off the train. That yeah. is that is just wrong. And everyone can see it's wrong. And yet the Israeli government of both both right and left have backed this and also liberal Zionists in America have done nothing serious to stop it. That that sort of shifts the neutral observer from thinking this is not this is this is an attempt to to push these people out of their own lands for for reasons of of that just is just not just if occupying a land even defensively is then followed by uh, repopulation for deliberate purpose then then th this is a, it, it it violates all sense of morality how do you respond to, to that? That's where I've gotten off the bus. I can't, I can't tolerate those settlements. I can't tolerate the ideology behind them. I can't tolerate the cruelty and misery that they're inflicting on people and the humiliation they inflict daily on human beings whose lives, whose only sin has been living in the place their forefathers have lived forever. My first response is that it's a serious moral argument and it needs to be treated with respect. My second response is to say that the way that Israelis have experienced this conflict in the last 20 years, and you're right to cite the 20-year mark, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, feels very differently. The trajectory feels very differently. The way it looks from the outside is that this overweening power is throwing its weight around and abusing a, a helpless population. The way that it feels from within the Israeli context is that we have been on the receiving end of, of unbearable waves of violence in the last 20 years that have upended the most basic sense of security that Israelis have. And, and let's go back to that to 20 years ago when the Oslo process failed. The last, the last real negotiation for a two-state solution, substantive negotiation, was in the year 2000 at Camp David when, when President Clinton invited Arafat and Ehud Barak to, to negotiate a deal. And Barak stunned the Israeli public by being the first Israeli leader to not only offer a two-state solution, but to offer the redivision of Jerusalem. And I can't think of another country that offered to voluntarily share sovereignty over its capital city, as Israel did it in 2000, and crucially to uproot dozens of settlements. Now, when I speak about this, it just sounds like it's it's old history already. But here, 
it's not old history. It's it's a living wound because what happened after Camp David, and then that was followed by the Clinton proposals, when Clinton put his idea of a peace plan on the table, Ehud Barak said yes, and Arafat walked away. Wasn't just the end of the peace process, but we went through the worst four years of, of, of in the history of Israel. It was four years of suicide bombings when we were in danger of losing our public spaces. Israelis were afraid to congregate in their public spaces. And there was a sense of the society unraveling. And it wasn't just the terrorism. It was the fact that the terrorism followed a serious Israeli offer for a two-state solution. When that broke down and the way in which it broke down, when that happened, the Israeli left unraveled. It lost its, its most basic credibility. For all practical purposes, if you look at Israeli politics today, there is no real left. It's a small minority position. There's the Israeli right and the Israeli center. But the, the traditional left, which championed the two-state solution, which placed Oslo at the center of its platform, that left was destroyed in the Second Intifada, in those four years of suicide bombings. In 2005, and forgive me for all the history, but... but no, you know, it's important. Please, in, take your time. In, in 2005, Israel withdrew, pulled out all of its settlements from Gaza. Now, it's true it didn't end the blockade, and it didn't end the blockade of Gaza for a simple reason, because as soon as we pulled out of Gaza, the rockets started firing over the international border. So Israelis saw two things consecutively. First, we had tried to create a two-state solution, and we got back atrocities. Then we withdrew from Gaza as a kind of a test case. What happens when Israel actually pulls out? And we pulled out 8,000 settlers. We uprooted all the army bases. Gaza was Palestinian. What happened the day after is that the violence just continued over the international border. Now, the, if you speak to Palestinians, they'll have a very different reading of what happened and why. And I think it's important to know the Palestinian narrative as well. But what I'm telling you is a normative Israeli reading, and it's my reading as well, of, of what happened and what went wrong. And it took me years, Andrew, years to get over my anger when people used to say to me, well, what about those settlements? I'd say, well, you know what? Ask the Palestinian leadership. Because none of that would, would be happening today. The wall that's outside my window wouldn't have been built. All of that could have been prevented if we could have made peace in the year 2000. So yes, I understand the Palestinian rejection of partition in 1947. I don't understand the Palestinian rejection in the year 2000. And I can't think of another national movement that has said no more often to, to territorial compromise, to offers of empowerment than the Palestinians have. And so this has created a deep cynicism among Israelis. And 
And I think it's a I think it's a disaster for Israel because those settlements are locking us in to a scenario from which, you know, it's a one state solution is going to be Yugoslavia or Lebanon or Syria. There is no good one state solution. And the settlers, to my mind, are leading us uh, into into a dead end. What frustrates me as an Israeli... Can I... Can I... Is can, can I yeah, go on. Just, just the last point, just is that what frustrates mm-hmm. me as an Israeli is that Israelis, in a sense, the Israeli public has become so passive and almost paralyzed by these traumas that we experienced over the years that we're not able to muster the will anymore in a way that we did in the 90s when there were massive demonstrations against the settlement movement. And and this and this this is this keeps me up at night. I understand. And I also I think it's completely understandable why uh, those refusals and then the onslaught from Gaza would create that emotional response. I I I I I think it's completely understandable, to be honest with you. And I can imagine one kind of response to that, which is to construct a wall, which is a defensive act, essentially, and to ensure your security, which that wall did do a lot to help, right? I mean, it really did help. These are defensive actions from a patient people that I would not begrudge an instant of. That is different than simultaneously repopulating and continuing to repopulate the only part of the country that these people will possibly have as uh, a homeland. And yes, then to I, offer I, I make, I make recently the same happened, distinction. Uh, an almost, yes, yes, I agree right, with okay, you. Okay, so that, I, this is simple. I wish I, wish and, I could and, argue and, with you. And I, this, I, 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 I wish I okay, could. Okay. Okay. This is where this is just where I'm coming from. And it, it and then from the point of view of America, like from our looking at this and and we saw a genuinely pro-Israel president like Barack Obama who who created the iron who helped the the iron dome as it were and who put huge amounts of effort into just being treated with contempt by the Israeli leadership. I mean, I witnessed this firsthand. The sheer, it's the only word for it, contempt for the United States president, a war on the United States president, run around against him in the well, now in we're a way about, that those now of we're us who support Israel, we aren't, we're talking partly about Iran, but we're also, but we're also talking about the settlements, essentially. That's, that's all Obama asked was a freeze a temporary freeze. Now, when it. the Israelis just refuse to do it. No, Andrew, he's yes. got he, Look, look, I, I really, it hurts me, truly, it hurts me to defend Netanyahu, but, but Netanyahu did, there was a 10-month settlement freeze when Obama came in. There was. And, and, and Israel yeah. never got the credit for that. And, and, you know, I mean, simply to stop, stop what is essentially, you know, a, an unbelievably aggressive move to destroy the possibility of a Palestinian homeland, to just freeze it is the least Israel could do. And they, 
wrought revenge on Obama for trying to get them to do even that. That's not my reading. It's, my reading. It's as if reading. Israeli. Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I just from the point of view of watching it from this end, it was for me a, a very transformative experience. I, I just saw then that the Israelis are not interested in a two-state solution and and it would be sensible for the United States to understand that there is no way that any Israeli government now or in the future is going to accept a partnership. And that's roughly where I'm at that. now. I don't yeah, believe I don't see that. in an instant that. That, that, that the Israeli government believes in a two-state solution. I think every day they show they don't. And I don't see a future to this. And, and in some ways, I've begun to suspect the two-state solution is simply a mechanism to create a one-state solution by the Israelis. That it's, that it's, that it, that it's become an almost cynical notion that we believe in this, even as we're doing every, every, every action we take, every move we make, shows the world we have no interest in a two-state solution, but we will, and in fact, every day it becomes less and less possible. And yet we're prepared to tell the world we really are. Well, who do we believe? How do we believe what Israelis are saying or what they're doing? I, I sort of believe what they're doing. So I think that you're right in the sense that after the second intifada and the withdrawal from Gaza, there was a, a a, a decline in the support for a two-state solution within the Israeli public. And in the end, what really matters is not what the Israeli government wants, it's what the Israeli public wants. Because the Israeli government will not go too far ahead of what the public can tolerate. And if you were to ask most Israelis today, do you believe in a two-state solution? They'll say, oh yeah, yeah, there'll be a two-state solution. There'll be a Palestinian state here on the next hill. I'm, I'm actually pointing literally to the West Bank, which starts on the next hill. And it's going to turn out to be another Gaza. And the rockets are going to fall this time, not on remote Israeli towns near the Gaza border, but on Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So most Israelis today will tell you, no, we can't have a two-state solution. Do you believe that we can never have a two-state solution? then you'll start getting different answers. Uh, there are some Israelis who will say to you, absolutely not, never. Others who will say, not yet, not yet. And then it's a fair question to say, well, then when? When, if, if not yet? It's, it's already 50 years of occupation. That's a fair question. But the, the, my sense is that you will have a majority of Israelis, again, for territorial compromise, as we had in the past, if they believe there's really a chance for peace. And I'll give you an example. The Abraham Accords last year, the, the, the peace agreement uh, between Israel and four Arab countries. We forget, but in the weeks before the Abraham Accords were signed, Netanyahu announced his plan to annex up to 30% of the West Bank. That would have been the effective end of a two-state solution, officially. That would have ended it. And the polls in, among Israelis were pretty divided. 
But I saw some polls where there was a slight majority of Israelis supporting it. There were some polls that showed that showed uh, that showed more of a balance, but it was very close in 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 all the polls. As soon as the Abraham Accords were announced, and the premise of the Accords were you have to suspend annexation, though that was the precondition laid out by 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 the the Gulf states. Eighty percent of the Israeli public supported suspending annexation, and the Netanyahu government opted for a peace agreement and froze the the annexation plan. The settlement movement was livid, but it showed that when there's really a chance for peace here, even even a right-wing government will will be coerced by the Israeli public into supporting peace over over territory. That's the dynamic. And that's why, you know, those who say that Israel needs to be pressured and it needs to be boycotted and it needs to be to be to be bullied into making concessions don't understand the Israeli psyche. We have been under siege here for 70 years from day one of our existence. Israelis are used to boycotts. We're used to siege. We're used to being called evil. We're used to having our right to exist denied. That's only more of the same. When we hear BDS, Israelis shrug. When we hear an Arab country saying, we're ready to to make peace with you, but you're going to have to freeze annexation, that's when Israelis start paying attention. Yeah, but notice you've upped the ante again. Now it's like, now, look, we're not even, we're not going to annex now. That's our concession. Well, we didn't think annexation was even on the table 10 years ago. So in fact, what you are actually witnessing is a gradual ratcheting up of Israeli demands. And the Abraham Accords are, we all know what they're about. They're, They're about the Israelis allying with the Sunnis against the threat of Shia Iran and the Sunnis don't give a damn about the Palestinian people. We, I, mean, I don't, I don't take any of those Arab countries seriously when it comes to the Palestinians. They, they don't give a damn, and they never have. So, I mean, there's plenty of hypocrisy and bullshit on those sides. But threatening to annex or not annexing settlements is still growing in numbers. And you talked about removing eight thousand settlers from Gaza, which is true. And I take all your points on that. You're completely correct about that. Four hundred thousand people on the west they're never leaving and okay. when you let's, look at the the peace agreement the, the, map, the, the proposal that let me just finish for a second let me just, look at the trump proposal which is where the american jewish community is now at it's it's really it's a form of humiliation it's it's clearly a form of brutal humiliation of the palestinians that is dressed up as a peace agreement it, it can't possibly okay. yeah. resolve it and so yeah, I, I agree it seems I to agree. me that 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 the one-state solution is now the only solution, and the question is, how does that manage? So I see some people like you, this man, A.B. Yehoshua. Is that am I pronouncing his name wrong? Right. Mm-hmm. I've been reading some of his stuff lately, where he, having been the novelist in his nineties now, been an extraordinarily distinguished figure and a passionate advocate of the two-state solution for decades, is now saying, "Let's be real. This is not going to happen." And we have to somehow find a way to put all of Israel in into a some sort of shared binational state. It seems to me, let me just put this out, provocatively put it out there. I don't 
I can't see that working either. <laughs> to be honest with you right now, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this, but it doesn't look likely that's happened to me. I, 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 so where, so where, where would you be with, with this? How do you, how do you respond to Yahushua's rather elegant, I've read several of his pieces recently, and they seem quite eloquent to me and quite persuasive in some ways. In one word, and the reason I say okay. it's pre the reason I say it's premature, is because yes, there are four hundred plus thousand uh, settlers today, but look at where most of them live. You have to actually break it down, because uh, three quarters of the settlers live in areas that are close to the old border, uh, areas we call settlement blocks. One quarter, one quarter of the settlers li live deep into the West Bank. Now, one quarter is still a substantial number of people for a small country, you know, 75,000 or 100,000 Israelis. But the fact that 300,000 plus settlers live in areas that are close to the old border is a problem that was already dealt with at Camp David and with the Clinton proposals. And what Clinton proposed was a territorial swap of about four or five percent of the West Bank in exchange for territory within Israel proper. And that was not the obstacle. Those, those three, I mean, their numbers have grown since, since then. Those, what, what, what are today 300,000 plus settlers, can be absorbed into the state of Israel in their homes. And the Palestinians compensated territorially. The problem is 75,000 to 100,000 settlers. And that, again, that's not a negligible problem, but that's also not necessarily a deal breaker. Because if there's a if there really was was a, a credible peace process, if Israelis really, and I'll speak for myself, if I felt that there was a Palestinian leadership that was ready to say, okay, we're ready to accept a deal that we could call 1948 for 1967. We will accept the Israeli state that emerged in 1948 in exchange for Israel relinquishing its territorial gains from the 1967 war, which is the West Bank and Gaza. But what that means is that the descendants of Palestinian refugees from the 1948 war, do not go to the state of Israel. They go to a Palestinian state. They don't go back to their original literal homes. They get compensation, but they go back to their homeland, which is now a sovereign state. That was the vision of the Clinton proposals. It, Palestinian leaders, every Palestinian leader has rejected that trade-off, has rejected 48 for 67. Now I'm willing to I'm willing to go so far as risk an Israeli civil war if there is an offer on the table from the Palestinian national movement of 48 for 67. I'm ready to uproot thousands of my fellow citizens and and go through that national trauma if there really is that offer. But I won't do it if the Palestinian national movement is telling me, well, you're going to have to withdraw back to the 67 lines, and then we'll see about, about the descendants of the refugees. That's not the deal. And, 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 I'm, 
And if I'm telling you that, as someone who who knows that that we we need a two-state solution, never mind the Palestinians for a moment. As an Israeli, I need a two-state solution. I need to save Israel as a as a Jewish majority and democratic state. That for me is is non-negotiable. That's the Israel that I moved to. I I I left America for that Israel, not to live in a binational state or God forbid an apartheid state. And we're not that, by the way. We're we're still very far from that, regardless of 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 the accusations against us. And so this is this is the problem now. The problem is not only a right-wing Israeli government and the settlers. Yes, that's a that's a that's a part of the problem. That's the part of the problem that I own and have to take responsibility for. But if that was the only problem, you would have had a strong Israeli majority a long time ago demanding a peace agreement. I understand. And I I'm I take your points about the refusal of Palestinian leadership to to offer that. I also take your empathy and understanding why that's very hard to do, that within only a couple of generations to say that your homes, your villages, your towns, where, you're, where you lived for so many years will never be available to you again. I just remember very vividly also the Obama administration offering the 67 lines with land swaps and being told to really go jump off a cliff. And, the Obama and I have to say never that- clear. They were never clear about the right of return in the way that Clinton was. They, they, they left that vague. And so when I heard that proposal, mm. that, my instinctive feeling was definitely go jump off a cliff. That was my feeling. Okay. <laughs> well, that was definitely the feeling we got over here, <laughs> that, 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 was, that was well communicated. Let me just put it that way. Yossi, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for thrashing this out with you and fleshing it out. Uh, and I wish I could say that having read your book, even though I'm a, a great admirer of your passion and empathy and honesty, honestly, I mean, that's another thing that I have to say is that, and I think the Israelis, and it says something about Israeli society that, for example, Israelis themselves have helped to uncover some of the worst aspects of Israeli actions in 1948, for example. That's something you can't imagine Palestinian, Palestinians doing, is that Israel still represents to me, and this is what it represents to me, is still a place where enlightenment values, where free speech, where toleration, where individual rights still matter in the Middle East in ways that they don't basically anywhere else. And, and for me, that's, that's both a great testament to to israel but also of course a tragedy because i just i can't i i i think the, the permanent occupation will, will make that basically impossible that if the, it becomes, the possibility of a jewish yeah. state and a democratic state is simply uh an illusion because it's let me put it this way just sort of more philosophically. You know, I'm basically a Burkean. I'm a conservative who has great sympathy for the Israeli project. But I also understand its utopianism. I mean, it really was a product of one of those 19th century utopianisms that seems to have been beached on the reality of human nature and human history. It's one of the, one of the few isms of the 19th century 
that has not obviously failed and been revealed to be impossible on the world stage in the way that, for example, communism, Nazism, or some of these other ideologies, uh, utopian ideologies, from their own point of view, utopian, did. And I, 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 I sort of beginning to see Zionism in the same same view that it's just too abstract, too out of the natural rhythms and development of history to really stick without real coercion. And that makes it paradoxical. And that's at some level, that's where I find my own watching this evolve. Mm -hmm. I just think, well, what a, what a, what another utopian experiment that is crashing into reality. Can I, where, why can I give I, you an Israeli not just a can utopian. I give you an Israeli response? <laughs> Please. I mean but, but, but try not to be rude. <laughs> the reason that I know what that, the probably the actual Israeli response would be to that, but <laughs> <laughs> well the reason I think that that Israel may be the only 19th century ism that hasn't failed is because it isn't only a 19th century ism. It's also the expression of a 3,500-year faith and story. And, and that story has such durability and has been tested under really every conceivable historical circumstance that I believe that we will have the resilience and hopefully the wisdom to, to figure this, this one out as well. And if there's anything that I've learned in my 40 years of, of living in Israel, it's never freeze, the never freeze the frame. Never say, this is Israel, this is what it is, this is what it's going to be. I've lived through at least three entirely distinct Israels. One radically different from the other. One inconceivable from the other. The Israel that I moved to in 1982 was still a struggling, poor socialist country. And today it's, it's one of the world's high-tech superpowers. The Israel that I moved to was still, still had a pioneering ideological self-sacrificing ethos. Today, Israel is a consumerist society. I, the changes are so drastic and I could go on and on. And so Andrew, I, I, I appeal to you as someone who I know wishes Israel well, who I know you want to see the Jewish people make it through this. Don't write us off just yet. It's not, the story is not over yet. And those who say that it is, and I know those voices well, I, I hear them just as you do. Those are false prophets. And um, in the end, in the end, there are no guarantees. God forbid, maybe they'll turn out to be right. But as of now, the situation is so fluid. There are so many variables that I couldn't predict for you, for you what's going to happen in Israel in five years from now, let alone, let alone 20 or 30. Well, I think those are very wise words too, uh, Yossi. And thank you. The trouble with, one of the, thank you for noticing that some of us who have been critical of Israel are being critical because we actually care about the country. And, and when we attempt to bring these points up, which are difficult points, we, I know they're difficult points, the way in which you are immediately 
ostracized, stigmatized, demonized as an anti-Semite is, is incredibly difficult to deal with in terms of having a, a really good debate. And, and I just want to thank you for understanding that it is possible, and in fact, some of us, if I really didn't give a damn, I wouldn't give a damn, right? I wouldn't be thinking about this, writing about it, or, or being, but it's hard for me not to want Israel to succeed. Uh, and it's hard for me not to see Israel as an astonishing story. I mean, we've, we've not talked about what has been built, positively built there, which is stunning. And when you look at the rest of the Middle East, you're just even more stunned by the extraordinary tenacity, innovation, balls, basically, of so many, and brains of so many Israelis that, that I'm in awe. On the other hand, I am extremely concerned that, that this, is, this is all going to end in terrible tears because it's based upon some things that just can't be sustained over time. But anyway... Blah, blah, blah. I'm not defending myself here. I'm interested in what you have to say. But you see, I, I, th I think we've really covered a lot of ground here, D difficult ground without getting too caught up on little bits and bobs and personalities and all the rest of it. But thank you so much. I, I, I hope this helps people think about this in, in a more constructive and, and, and nuanced way. And I'm with you too. You, history is, look, it's anything can happen, everything anything can happen, everything has happened, essentially. So I, I'll just pray for you and for your country and also for those who find your country such, a, such an intolerable source of oppression and, and, and misery because they all need our support. Well, Andrew, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. It really meant a lot to me and your prayers even more so. so. Thank you. Well, Yossi, it's lovely to talk to you. And you have a, a wonderful, I guess it's not, I mean, it'd be wonderful for us to have a Christmas here, but it's obviously not Christmas in, in Jerusalem. But I hope you have a, a, a lovely rest of, of the year anyway. And thanks for coming on. Well, wishing you a joyful Christmas and a happy new year. And one more time, letters to my Palestinian neighbor, Yossi Klein Halevi, an anguished, honest, beautifully written book that I, I think will help people understand what it's like to have to balance these enormous conflicts in such a conflicted place. We'll see you next time on the Dishcast, a full year ahead of ever more interesting and I hope uh, provocative guests. See you in the new year.